Well, good morning again to not only you, but all of you folks at home or wherever you're watching on online, a welcome to you as well. Again, one of the good things of, that came about through the pandemic was getting ourselves online so folks while they're on vacation or uh, stationed abroad, some in the military, some at college or schooling or wherever, we can still connect and join together. What a blessing that is. Well, if you've been with us this summer, you know that we are going through the book of Jeremiah, not sequentially, but just uh, taking some, not exactly random, but some different lessons from the book. It's more than we could bite off in the course of the summer to do the whole book, but there are some wonderful lessons here. I encourage you to grab your Bible and open to Jeremiah chapter 22, Jeremiah 22 this morning. We've been singing this morning some some wonderful songs. I Love that song we just learned recently and sang this morning, Is He Worthy? What a tremendous message in that psalm. I'm deeply moved every time we sing that as you step through just the the progression of that truth. And it's picturing, of course, the scene in heaven. Uh, Is He Worthy to Open the Scroll? Uh, What a great scene that is, Revelation 4, 6. But anyway, great songs. We've been singing about the compassion of God. And as we come here to Jeremiah, many of you have probably heard, as I have on several occasions, have heard statements like, God in the Old Testament is a God of wrath. But God in the New Testament is a God of mercy. God in the Old Testament is angry, but God in the New Testament is gracious and compassionate. If you've ever heard that, please understand that is simply not true. We know that for one thing because the Bible just outright says God does not change. God has not changed in his nature or character nor in his behavior towards men. For example, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, speaking of Jesus Christ, who, of course, is God the Son, says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He does not change. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. We could go other places in the Scripture, but the reality is that God is immutable. He does not change in Anything, whatever God was three millennia ago or six millennia ago or, you know, a billion years ago, God still is. What God is now, He has always been. God is and has always been holy and righteous. Because He is holy and righteous, He must Judge sin. And so in the New Testament, just as in the Old Testament, there are many statements about God, that God will judge sin, many warnings that God will judge sin. So one statement like that in the New Testament, we are are very well acquainted with John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. And it goes on that he who does not believe 
is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And then just a few verses later, down in verse 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides or remains on him. God is wrathful. He hates sin. God has always hated sin. And he, because he is holy and just, he must judge sin. But while God has always been holy and righteous, God has also always been compassionate and gracious and merciful. And so we find throughout the Old Testament, even as throughout the New, we find many statements about God's compassion and about his grace. One, for example, from Exodus 34 says, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. You can find almost that identical statement, or very similar, uh, about 10 to 12 times throughout the Old Testament. And many, many, many passages about the the mercy and the grace and the compassion and the hesed, the faithful love of God. But as we come to Jeremiah, to this book of Jeremiah, it is a book of judgment. And I think for that reason, as we read Jeremiah, or probably really any of the prophets in the Old Testament, we find that God, it, it talks about warnings about God's judgment of sin. And so for that reason, many people, when they come to a book like this, they say, see, there it is. God is a God of wrath and anger. And and just as we look at Jeremiah's ministry, first of all, understand that Jeremiah, in particular of the prophets, Jeremiah's ministry spanned Judah's last days. I drew up a chart just to help us because sometimes it's kind of hard to get the picture a little bit. Jeremiah's ministry, his first 18 years of ministry, began during the years of King Josiah, the last of the good and godly kings of Judah. Thirteen years into Josiah's reign is when Jeremiah began his ministry, and the dates are up there on the top, in 627 B.C. Eighteen years he, he ministers under Josiah, but then the last 22 years of Jeremiah's ministry are under four kings, every one of them evil men. And despite repeated warnings from God for the people to repent, otherwise he's going to send judgment for their sin, they do not respond. So eventually God sends the judgment that he's promised through Jeremiah. That Babylon comes and invades, not one time, but three times. Over a period of 19 years, there are three invasions. And the judgment comes not only in waves, but it keeps getting worse. And each time with warnings and with calls from God that if you repent, things will be better. And they don't. So it is a book of judgment. But even in these dark days of God's judgment, not only of warnings of judgment to come, but as the judgment actually unfolds during Jeremiah's ministry, this book is loaded with God's compassion. His compassion is clearly present all the way through the book. As we come here to Jeremiah 22 this morning, we see 
words from God given to each of these four last kings. And as I've said, the judgment begins during this time. And he's talking to wicked kings. And it's a passage that is loaded with judgment. But I want to call our attention to how even in this passage, in the dark days, even in this time when there is wickedness abounding, even in this time where judgment is falling, there's compassion. And if we can find it here, we can see when we look throughout all of the Old Testament, we can see the compassion of God just woven all the way through. So three ways this morning that I want us to see God's compassion displayed we begin in chapter 22 in verses 6 through 9 as God is speaking to the very last of the kings. Chapter 21, he's speaking to King Zedekiah, the last king. And chapter 22, it continues as he speaks to him. Verse 6, we'll pick it up there. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of the king of Judah, You are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, Yet surely I will make you a desert, an uninhabited city. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. Now Gilead and the summit of Lebanon don't really mean much to us today here in America. But in that time and in that place, they were well known, both Gilead and the summit of Lebanon, as lush green places, the lush forests of Gilead and Lebanon. And those are as a very precious treasure in an arid land, especially beautiful. When Janet and I had the privilege of being in Israel a number of years ago, we had the privilege of going to this area of the north, the the region of Lebanon. And as you go to the border of Israel and Lebanon, even today, what you discover there is there is a place that is lush green forest. You'd think you're in a tropical rainforest. It is so lush and beautiful and such a rare thing in that region. If you've been there, most of Israel is either desert or it's very arid. And the only reason things grow is because they're irrigated. And such a lush thing. And God says, as much as that's something beautiful and a treasure, Zedekiah and Israel, that is what you are to me. Even though, however, you are a beautiful treasure to me, I will make you like a desert wasteland. That's what's coming, he says. We wonder, why is God going to totally destroy? That's the implication there. I will totally destroy you. Why is God going to do that? The answer is in the next verses, verses 8 and 9. And many nations will pass by this city, and every man will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? Because it's shocking. And they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. They forsook the covenant relationship with God. They bowed down to other gods. They chased after idols. Their situation, he says, is bad. It's really bad because their crime is really big. Rejecting God. That is 
really the greatest crime. We saw that, if you remember, if you were here a number of weeks ago in chapter 2. The greatest crime is when the people that God has called out and chosen to be His people, the people who had a relationship with the living Creator God, and who then turn their back on God to chase after idols, lifeless idols that some guy made in his backyard. And that is what they exchanged for a relationship with the living God. They forsook Him to take this. And it's, it's not only ludicrous, it's not only foolish, it's a great offense and a great crime. They've rejected God. They've broken the covenant, the contract, the relationship they had, and they chased idols. So God is going to totally destroy them, even as God had promised He would do back when they began their relationship, if they would do what they've done. You say, where in the world is God's compassion in that? Well, It's in the five verses that come before it. Let's look. Verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 22. Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word. And say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Everybody listen up. Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, and they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Judah had been warned by the prophets about impending judgment because of their sin and their rebellion and the rejection of God for over two centuries. And they have ignored God for the most part, except during the time of Josiah. They were warned then by Jeremiah for 22 years before the judgment started because while Josiah was leading the people rightly, the hearts of the people, we discovered, still had not turned back to God. And so 22 years before the first judgment started, Jeremiah was warning, it's still coming, the judgment is still coming. Now, by the time that as this word is given by God to King Zedekiah, they've been invaded twice by Babylon. The judgments have started in 605 B.C. and later in 597 B.C. When Babylon came in, there was great loss of life among the Jews, loss of property, loss of freedoms. And at this time, there well over 10,000 citizens of Judah who are now living as captives back in Babylon. And God says, if you don't repent, things are going to get worse. Even at this late hour, though, before the final hammer of judgment falls, where God is going to destroy everything, 
God offers mercy. Change your ways. Live justly and mercifully, and I will spare you the worst judgment which is yet coming. I won't destroy everything. In fact, he said, life in Judah will will go on with kings living here in the palace, entering in the palace with people coming in and out, with people riding in chariots and on horses. Life will go on with a semblance of normalcy if you'll just, even now, turn from this wickedness among you. But if you won't do this, if you won't repent, then all the judgments I've said will come. Unfortunately, they refused to listen. And the judgments came. But in this last hour, God offers mercy. There's the compassion of God. I really don't want to do this. And he has warned them to the extreme all the way along and offered so many opportunities. They refused to listen and the judgments came. There's a lesson for us here. Israel's experience, by the way, is to serve for us an example. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, these things were written down beforehand for us, for our learning so that we might learn from their example. God is merciful and gracious, but God is also holy and righteous. And He will judge unrepentant sinners. We see that illustrated in the life, in the history here of Israel. And it's a reminder that Not only does God judge His people there temporally, but there is a judgment coming that is for eternity. The final and ultimate cost and penalty of sin is hell. That's coming at the final judgment. The Apostle Peter reminds us that in our own time, in our own day, people will doubt that such judgment will ever take place. That Jesus will ever come back as judge and will judge people and condemn people to hell. And he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, these people will mockingly say, where is the promise of His coming? (laughs) You say that, that Jesus has said He's coming back. You say He's going to come as judge. (laughs) Where is it? Where is it? He hasn't come back. See, He's not ever coming back. But He goes on to say, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. But He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason Jesus Christ hasn't come back in judgment is because He is giving one more hour, one more day, one more week, one more month, one more year for more people to hear the good news of salvation available through Christ and put their faith in Him and be rescued from hell. And again, we see that same patience of God illustrated in the life of Israel, of Judah, over this past 200 years. And even in these last hours, that same mission of mercy, and that was really Jeremiah's mission. 
He was God's mouthpiece, not just to proclaim the judgment, but to proclaim God's offer of mercy to the people. Brothers and sisters, that is our mission as well. Our mission is to be ambassadors for Christ. As Paul wrote the Corinthians in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God's compassion for sinners is our mission in this world today. It's why God has left us here in this world. It's why He hasn't taken us to heaven yet. We are here to be God's mouthpiece, He says, to proclaim the good news of God's grace. God became man. Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary died to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose again from the dead, gaining victory over sin and death. And He offers to everyone, to anyone, if they will put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior, He offers forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, restored relationship with God, and eternal life forevermore. That's our mission. You see, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God of compassion, a God of forgiveness of sin, a God who longs to save man from the awful fate of their sin. The first way of seeing compassion is God's offer of mercy. As the chapter continues, in the rest of the chapter, Jeremiah takes us back. This was God's message to Zedekiah. But he goes back to the three evil kings that preceded him. He was the last of the evil kings. And he goes back and has a message that he had given to each of them in their day. And he goes back to Jehoahaz, the first of these last four evil kings. That's in verses 10 to 12. And again, I won't read it here, but if you do, what you'll find there is this king, Shalom, he's often called, or Jehoahaz, is Josiah's son. He's the son of a good godly man, but he was a wicked man, an evil man. And after only three months on the throne, God allowed this king to be captured by Pharaoh Necho. This was before Babylon had invaded, and before Babylon was considered the world great power. At this time, it was Egypt down to the south, and Egypt invaded and took, took Jehoahaz away as a captive and took him into exile down to Egypt. And even as God said here, he will never return, he's even going to die in Egypt. Verses 13 to 19 is God's word to Jehoiakim, his successor. Uh, Jehoiakim's successor, it was his brother. And he rules for 11 years on the throne. Four years into his reign, Judah was invaded for the first time by Babylon. But King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon left Jeho- Jehoiakim on the throne for another seven years to serve under him as a vassal, to serve under, his, under Nebuchadnezzar's power. You might remember if you were here last week that 
This man, Jehoiakim, was the man that was on the throne. As last week we saw as Jeremiah is dictating to his secretary, Baruch, and writing down all the words that God had commanded them to write down of everything that, that Jeremiah had been preaching for all all of his ministry up to that time. They're writing it down into a book, and you recall God had a message for the secretary for Baruch, a wonderful message of encouragement. They finished that writing. They finished the scroll, the book of all of Jeremiah's prophecies. You remember the purpose for that we saw in Scripture was that the purpose was that when the people saw it, just maybe, just maybe when the people saw it and the the leaders saw it and the kings saw it, and when they read the words, they, they saw all of their sin and they saw all God's offers of mercy, that just maybe they would repent of their sin and experience God's mercy instead of His judgment. Well, they finished the book. You know what happened? It was read in, in the courtyard of the temple on a feast day. And a lot of people were like, oh, this is a big deal. And some of the religious leaders then, they gathered together and they, they had, it was Baruch the secretary who did the reading, and, and he read it to all the religious leaders. And they're like, oh, this is bad. And they took it to the king. They said, king, you got to hear this. And Jehoiakim, as he heard it, every little line or paragraph that was read, he would cut that out of the page and stick it in the fire. And he burned the whole scroll. He didn't care what God had to say. That was Jehoiakim. Here's what God said to Jehoiakim. The text informs us that that when Jehoiakim would die, sometime after Nebuchadnezzar's second invasion, he would not be honored like a king, nor would he be lamented by the people nor would he be given a king's burial, but instead his body would be taken out and thrown out with the trash. Verses 20 to 30 concern Jehoiachin, the next to the last king, sometimes called Jeconiah or Kaniah. He was Jehoiakim's son who succeeded him, and he was put on the throne by King Nebuchadnezzar. He also was a wicked king who had not listened to God. It said there in verse 21 of chapter 22, nor obey God. God said, I'm going to tear you from your place of authority. I'm going to give you into the hands of the enemy that you fear. That's Babylon. And he and his family are going to be carried off to Babylon as captives and never return. And he only ruled for three months. So, again, lots of judgment. Lots of wrath being poured out on evil kings who got what they deserved to say, where in the world is there mercy and compassion in this? Well, interestingly enough, in the next chapter, in the first two verses, we learn here why God has destroyed these leaders and there is compassion here. Look at verse 1 and 2, chapter 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. God says, the shepherds, the king and the governors and the leaders who served under the king, You didn't care for my people. Matter of fact, instead of caring for them, you abused them. And God is calling them to account. He is holding them accountable for their treatment of His people. Where's the mercy here? 
Where's the compassion of God? We discover God's compassion for the powerless. God's compassion for the vulnerable. God's compassion for the poor. God's compassion for the abused. God's compassion for the mistreated. For the orphan. For the widow. See, if we go back to chapter 22, a verse we read earlier, where God is speaking to the last king, to King Zedekiah, and He is offering mercy instead of judgment, what He said there in verse 3, if you look back in chapter 22, verse 3, Thus said the Lord, Do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien or to the fatherless or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. God said to Zedekiah, the last king, if you would simply execute justice instead of injustice, if instead of oppressing the poor, you show care, instead of mistreating the widow and the innocent, you have justice. I won't completely destroy this place, nor you. It's really a pretty low bar that God set there. Just stop doing bad stuff and I won't destroy you. He doesn't even call him, I noticed, to some of godliness. He calls him simply to stop sinning, to stop injustice. You get over to farther in the chapter, but it goes back in time to King Jehoiakim, the other one of those evil kings that reigned for 11 years. And it says, and I won't read it, but in verses 13 to 17, God pronounces judgment on him and he says why. What we discover is that King Jehoiakim, in the midst of the, the fact that Egypt first is oppressing them and, and taxing the country very harshly, and then Babylon replaces Egypt in oppressing the people and the country and taxing them harshly. Jehoiakim is out building lavish palaces. Jehoiakim is fattening his wallet and getting rich. And he's doing it all through injustice. He's doing it through unrighteousness. He's doing it through unpaid and forced labor. He is living large getting rich through dishonest gain, through oppressing the weak and the poor and the needy and the shedding of innocent blood. All of this, by the way, says how bad things were in Judah at that time. Speaking again to King Jehoiakim, he says of his father, good King Josiah, he says, verse 15, Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Didn't your father both live comfortably? He ate and drank. He didn't starve. He didn't live in the poorhouse. But at the same time, didn't he do justice and righteousness? He says, then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. He took care of the, he, he administered justice. He took care of the vulnerable. Notice what he says at the end of that verse. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord? Here's what God says. If we know and follow Him, we will care about the weak and the powerless and the poor. I want to make a couple of things very clear. Justice and social concern are not 
the gospel. And they are not our mission as the church. We saw our mission a moment ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It is to be ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for God, declaring the good news of reconciliation with God, forgiveness with God through Jesus Christ. That is our mission. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. We are to go and make disciples. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We are to be His witnesses. The gospel is our mission. We must keep that always primary in our thoughts and in our actions. But, that said, we cannot embrace the gospel and come to know and trust Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord and be united with the God of Scripture in relationship with Him to be called His children And we cannot do that, all of those things, and not be concerned about the poor and the needy and the suffering. It simply naturally follows. As God says here, is not this to know me, declares the Lord. When we come into right relationship with God, it shows up in our treatment and our care for others. That is not our prime mission, but it comes out of the compassion of God flowing through us as His people. Where does the compassion of God show up here in this whole message of judgment and time of judgment? We see that God has a heart for hurting people and for the vulnerable and the powerless. One more place I want us to see God's compassion show up here. Again, back to chapter 23. Just these next few verses. We're just going to have a minute to touch on it. And we're going to have to move on. But follow as I read. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold. And they shall be fruitful and multiply. And I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they shall fear no more. Nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the The days are coming when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Third place we see God's mercy is in a promise, God's promise for restoration. It is not only here, it is all through the book of Jeremiah and through other prophets as well. God said He was going to judge them and send them into captivity, but in God's compassion, He gives His people a promise. After they have completed their punishment, God will return them from captivity. He will restore them in their land. And this message was such a comfort to 
the godly remnant, those few godly folks who were still in Judah as judgment fell, folks like Daniel. Daniel, if you ever have read the book of Daniel, you'll find that Daniel, as he was reading the prophet Jeremiah, Daniel chapter 7, he realizes God said, we're going to be restored to the land and the captivity will only last 70 years. And he looks at his watch and he says, that's about now. And he begins to pray. It was comfort to the captives and to those who in captivity finally got the message. You know, I think God's been trying to get our attention. And the message is, God even promises that He's going to restore us from this place. What a wonderful truth. This passage promises a restored people. But it's interesting it goes beyond that. You notice He promises a king. A righteous branch of David. A descendant of David who is going to be righteous and who is going to rule with righteousness and justice and security and wisdom and joy. It's a promised King, the Messiah. And it's a promise that's still future. Because you know, since the days of Zedekiah, that last king, before they were all taken into captivity, by the way, when when it ended, as the kingdom came to an end, everybody was either dead or captive in Babylon, or a few who had run other places. Since that time, till this very day, there has never been a descendant of David sit on the throne. But God says one is coming. There are many Christians today, and many good brothers and sisters in Christ, who do not believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back and rule and reign literally on a throne in Jerusalem in this earth. There are many fine brothers and sisters. I disagree with them. I believe Jesus Christ is going to come back and fulfill this promise. Because I can't find here and other places where throughout the Scriptures, and we'll see in Jeremiah in the New Covenant, chapter 31, chapter 30, 31, I can't see conditions attached. God says He's going to do it, and He's saying it to a bunch of sinful people whom He's judging. I think God's going to keep His promise. Not only that, I get to the end of the book, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, two chapters from the end. And you see right after Jesus returns to earth in great power and great glory, Revelation chapter 19, and He judges wicked. An interesting thing says that He reigns on the earth for a thousand years. I think it's the fulfillment of this promise. There's much I don't understand. There's questions I can't answer. I am just simply take God at His word. The disciples also were confused after Jesus' death and resurrection because they understood that Jesus was the Messiah. They understood the promise of Messiah. And here, like this, Messiah is going to set up the kingdom and He's going to rule with righteousness and justice. And so they asked after the death and resurrection of Christ, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they said, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it now? 
And Jesus answered, and his answer was, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. I would think, by the way, if he's not going to come back and rule because Israel rejected the kingdom, so it's not happening, which some of our brothers and sisters say, I would think you would say, guys, you, you didn't get the point. It's not happening that way. Instead, he just says, guys, it's not for you to know the times. And he goes on, but you will receive power. After the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He says, guys, it's not for you to know the times about the kingdom. What's important right now is you focus on the mission. Go be my witnesses. Brothers and sisters, I think this is a promise that there's great things coming. But what do we need to focus on right now? Focus on the mission. There's a world of people out there who need to hear there's a God who loves them. He loves them so much that He sent His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe you're here this morning you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You don't know that you're God's child. You don't have a restored relationship with God and a future in heaven. And that offers to you right now if you put your faith and trust in Him. John 1 says you'll be a child of God. You have a future in heaven. I invite you. He and God invite you. Jesus Christ invites you right now. Be reconciled to Him. For the rest of us, we have a merciful God who not only has rescued us and not only offers to a world out there salvation, He's a King who's coming back to bring great and wonderful, marvelous things to us. As He says early in the book of Revelation, Behold, I am coming soon. He says, And I bring my reward with me. He's bringing rewards for us. Good things. Let's pray. Father, what wonderful, marvelous truths are here. You are a God of grace and compassion. Sin must be dealt with. Sin must be judged. But you have provided a way out through Jesus. You are the same God today as you were in the day of Jeremiah. And you have put all that there not only because it was history as you were moving towards bringing the Messiah, but it's simply, it's also there for our learnings so that we can understand both your justice and your wrath against sin and your great mercy and your great grace. Oh, Father, may we embrace your grace, not only to trust Jesus as our Savior, but then to embrace the mission to be those who carry this good news to the ends of the earth. For it is your desire that not any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Thank you for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name.